hidden inside the 5,593-page COVID relief bill just recently passed by the United States Congress is an interesting request. This is that the Director of National Intelligence, in cooperation with the Secretary of Defense, brief Congress on everything they know about UFOs within 180 days. The briefing is to go over, quote, observed airborne objects that have not been identified and include, quote, detailed analysis of unidentified phenomena data collected by A, geospatial intelligence, B, signals intelligence, C, human intelligence, and D, measurement and signals intelligence. This is all part of the Intelligence Authorization Act for the fiscal year 2021 that was part of the overall coronavirus relief package and was spearheaded by Florida Republican Senator Mark Rubio. Rubio worries that all this UFO stuff we keep hearing about might be high-tech vehicles and or weaponry from Russia or China. He says, quote, maybe there is a completely sort of boring explanation for it, but we need to find out. UFOs have been in the popular imagination for the last half of the 20th century for sure, and even before that, and maybe it's time we take a look at the early days of the phenomenon. Along the way, we'll discover the origins of terms like flying saucer, men in black, and little green men, as well as follow the progress of various U.S. government projects implemented to investigate reports of strange things in the sky. And also tomorrow, January 7th, is the anniversary of what has been called by some the first UFO-related death on record. You leave the world behind and enter a large chamber filled with boxes and crates as far as the eye can see. Welcome to The Conspiracy Clearinghouse. The podcast that takes a rather skeptical look at conspiracies and mysteries. Each episode will examine various conspiracy theories, most of which are not true, a few of which might be a little bit true, and even a couple that turned out, in fact, to be true. There are many boxes in the clearinghouse, and along the way, we'll look at some mysteries and hoaxes as well. We dare to look behind the curtain that's behind the curtain. I'm your host, Derek DeWitt. Welcome to the Conspiracy Clearinghouse. Signs, Grudges, grudges, and Blue Books, books. Early Early Ufology. ufology. Today is January 6th, and tomorrow, January 7th, is the 73rd anniversary of what Air Force officials refer to as the first UFO-related death on record. The Mantell UFO Incident. On January 7th, 1948, a Wednesday, the Kentucky Highway Patrol sent a report to Godman Army Airfield at Fort Knox of a strange circular object about 250 to 300 feet across, that's about 80 to 90 meters, seen in the slightly overcast sky heading west from Madisonville. Just before 2 in the afternoon, Sergeant Quinton Blackwell and two others stationed up in the control tower at Fort Knox reported that they could see the object, which they described as white. The base commander, Guy Hicks, also saw the object, saying that he thought it was very white and it looked like it was about a quarter the size of the full moon in the sky. 
though he thought he also saw a red border along the bottom edge. The object was not moving when he saw it, but simply hovering in one place for about 90 minutes or so. The object was also seen for a little over half an hour by people at the Clinton County Army Airfield, which is now the Wilmington Air Park, up in Ohio, just northeast of Cincinnati. Those people, however, did not describe it as white, but as a, quote, a flaming red cone trailing a gaseous green mist, sort of Christmassy. At Lockburn Army Airfield, which is now Rickenbacker International Airport, just south of Columbus, Ohio, more people reported it, saying that it came down very close to the ground, stayed there for about 10 seconds hovering, and then shot up to 10,000 feet, leveled off, and then disappeared into the clouds heading southwest. A report filed by Albert Pickering to the commanding officer of Lockbourne titled Report of Unusual Circumstances estimated that the object speed was in excess of 500 miles an hour when flying level, so not rocket-powered and not in a steep dive. And that's pretty fast for the time. So, three F-51D Mustangs from the 165th Fighter Squadron of the Kentucky Air National Guard and one P-51 Mustang, who were already in the air, were radioed and told to go check it out. Sergeant Quentin Blackwell up in the Fort Knox Tower was in radio communication with the pilots for the remainder of the incident. One of these pilots was 25-year-old hotshot Captain Thomas F. Mantell Jr. He was the one flying the P-51 Mustang, a plane he was not very familiar with, but he had logged over 2,100 flight time hours, and he had been an ace during the Battle of Normandy during the war, so he was an experienced flyer. One of the F-51Ds was low on fuel, so it peeled off and the remaining three planes went on to make visual contact with the object. The other two pilots also made visual contact. They suggested to Mantell, who was further ahead and had a clearer view, that maybe all three of them should level off their altitude and try and get a clearer look so they could confirm each other's observations. One of the reasons for this, too, was that one of the other pilots, Lieutenant Albert Clemens, was running low on oxygen and they were too high but Mantell ignored them and continued climbing. At 22,500 feet, the other two pilots called off their pursuit, but Mantell continued climbing to pursue the object. Somewhere around 25,000 feet, Mantell fell unconscious due to hypoxia, which is a lack of oxygen. With no one operating the plane, it spiraled down and crashed on a farm near Franklin, Kentucky, not far from the Tennessee state line. Mantell's body was found in the wreckage, dead in his seat with a tattered seatbelt. His watch had stopped at 3.18 p.m., which is when he crashed, and he is buried at Zachary Taylor National Cemetery in Louisville, Kentucky. As one of those, ha <laughs> ha, isn't that funny things, Mantell lived almost his entire life in Louisville, but he had been born in a hospital in Franklin, very close to the field in which he died. Today, there is a historical plaque just outside Franklin that gives details of Mantell's career and his fatal pursuit of the unidentified flying object. Suspicions, Suspicions are, raised. are raised. The press got a hold of the story and really ran with it. Now, usually UFO reports were kind of filler stories used when news was slow or they needed some extra column space to fill in a page. But here we had a World War II hero who died while chasing something mysterious in the skies over the American heartland. This was a story they could sink their teeth into. And so rumors began circulating claiming that the object maybe had been a Soviet missile or it was an alien spacecraft and it shot down his plane, that his body had been found riddled with bullet holes or that the body had never been recovered. 
that the wreckage was found to be highly magnetized or highly radioactive, or that the plane had actually simply disintegrated in the air and there was no wreckage, or that if there was wreckage, it was faked. There were so many wild stories floating around that in just a couple of weeks, the Air National Guard felt compelled to issue statements refuting all of them. The military also wanted some answers and set some of their investigators from Project Sign, later Project Grudge, and also Project Blue Book to look into it. The Mantell UFO incident would become one of what Captain Edward J. Ruppelt, who used to head Blue Book, would call the three classic UFO cases that all happened in 1948. Cases that made him and the public think that maybe there really was something going on above their heads and that the things that people were reporting were perhaps actually physical objects and not just optical illusions or imagination. What were the other two big UFO events of 1948, you may ask? Well, I'll tell you. The Child's Child's Witted witted UFO UFO Encounter. Two commercial pilots were flying a DC-3 passenger plane for Eastern Airlines at 5,000 feet near Montgomery, Alabama at 2.45 in the morning when Chief Pilot Clarence Childs saw a, quote, dull red glow ahead and just a little bit above the plane. He remarked to his co-pilot, John Witted, look, here comes a new Army jet job. The object closed the distance to the DC-3 in just a few seconds, pulled up short, and then shot up into the clouds, quote, with a tremendous burst of flame out of its rear. Both pilots described it as a wingless craft about 100 feet long, about 25 to 30 feet in diameter, sort of torpedo or cigar-shaped, with two rows of rectangular windows through which a brilliant magnesium flare-like light was glowing. Since it was early in the morning, only one passenger was awake, a C.L. McKelvey, who reported seeing it, but he only saw a bright streak of light. He didn't actually see a craft. Upon arrival in Atlanta, Charles and Witted reported what they'd seen to the Air Force, and they were interviewed by people from Project Sign. Later, Project Blue Book re-interviewed all the people involved, and Captain Ruppelt said that this incident shook the old-timers at the Air Technical Intelligence Center worse than the Mantell incident. This was the first time two trustworthy people, trained observers, had described seeing one of these things up close. The Project Sign people plotted the track the object supposedly took, showing it would have had to have passed near Macon, Georgia. They asked around and found that the crew chief at Robbins Air Force Base near Macon reported seeing, quote, an extremely bright light pass overhead at high speed on the same night around the right time. The Gorman Gorman UFO UFO Dogfight The third of Ruppelt's classic three encounters occurred on the night of October 1st, 1948, in the skies over Fargo, North Dakota. Like Captain Thomas Mantell, George Gorman was also 25 and also a veteran of World War II. He managed a construction company, but was also a second lieutenant in the North Dakota National Guard. While flying cross-country with some other National Guard pilots, the air group reached the airspace over Fargo, North Dakota about 8.30 p.m. The other pilots decided to land at the local Hector Airport, but since it was such a nice cloudless night, Gorman decided he wanted to keep buzzing around and get in some night flying experience. At about 9 p.m., he flew over a high school football game, and he noticed a Piper Cub, which is a small propeller airplane in the air about 500 feet below his P-51 Mustang. Interestingly, Gorman is flying the same plane that Mantell flew. 
And then, off to the west, Gorman noticed something else, a blinking light of some kind. He contacted the tower at Hector Airport, and they said they only had him and the Piper, and the pilot of the Piper said he and his passenger could also see this blinking light off to the west. So, Gorman flew towards this light to try and determine what it was, going just about as fast as the P-51 can go, which is about 350 to 400 miles an hour. However, the unidentified object was much faster and responded to an attempt to cut across its flight path by coming straight at Gorman's plane and then at the last moment going over the plane. Gorman said he saw it clearly. It was a ball of light about six to eight inches across and when it went faster, it stopped blinking and instead glowed brightly. After this near miss, the light turned around and came back at the plane. Again, sharply climbing at the last minute before it would impact the P-51. Gorman tried to follow, but his plane stalled out at 14,000 feet, and the light was still 2,000 feet above him at that point and still climbing. As his plane began losing altitude, the light turned around and came back down towards him, again veering off at the very last moment. Down at lower altitudes, where his plane could operate more efficiently, he continued to chase it around, and two more times, it seemed to rush at him, and then at the very last minute, avoid hitting his plane. The dogfight, if you want to call it that, had moved over the airport this time, and L.D. Jensen, who was the air traffic controller on duty that night, said he could see the light through his binoculars, but just a light. He didn't seem to see a ship or a craft the light was attached to, just the light, a small, bright, sometimes blinking light. The pilot of the small Piper plane who'd seen it earlier, Dr. A.D. Cannon, and his passenger went up into the control tower to watch everything going on. Gorman went back up to 14,000 feet, looked around for the object, and then saw it below him at 11,000 feet. So he went into a steep dive at full speed to get near it. So he's going even faster than the plane can normally operate at. As he approached, the light shot straight up into the air and then raced off into the distance at incredible speed. Gorman lost contact at about 9.27 p.m. after about 15 minutes of chasing the light around the sky. In a statement later, he said he definitely thought there was a thought process behind the movements of this light ball. And he said even though it was fast and it made these incredible turns, it wasn't magic and it wasn't light reflected off his windscreen or anything like this. The object actually followed curves as it moved, just like a real object would have to, even at those velocities. And so he thought for sure there was something physically there in the skies with him. Of course, having a strange ball of light rush at an airplane over and over and over again might seem kind of frightening. Though, from where I'm sitting, it almost seems playful, almost like a puppy playing with a new toy. But anyway, people from Project Sign investigated and interviewed all the people who'd seen the object. They took readings of Gorman's P-51 Mustang and found it was more radioactive than planes that had been on the ground for a few days, which led to some speculation that perhaps this ball of light was, quote, atomic-powered. The investigators also looked into whether what Gorman and the others had seen could have been another aircraft of some sort, like maybe one of these new de Havilland vampire jet fighters that the Canadians were using, or maybe even a weather balloon. But then they ended up ruling these possibilities out because there were no other planes in the area and no weather balloons had been released. Oh, but wait just a minute. A couple of days later, it turns out that a lit weather balloon 
had been released about 8.50 that night. Remember, Gorman first saw it at 9 o'clock by the Air Weather Service in that area. Project Sign investigators then concluded that this is what Gorman had seen. The amazing aerial acrobatics that Gorman reported were an illusion brought about by Gorman's own maneuvers in the P-51. Then, as the balloon drifted further away, they said Gorman mistook the planet Jupiter for the light he'd been chasing, and so what a surprise he never caught up to it because, you know... What about the radiation? Well, planes that fly higher up are exposed to more radiation. There's less atmosphere to shield them. So that accounted for the higher Geiger counter readings. Project Grudge and Project Blue Book would both reinvestigate the Gorman incident, and they also came to the same weather balloon conclusion that Project Sign had come to. Though there are several people in the Air Force, and at least one physicist, who disagreed with these findings. And yet, even some UFO researchers say that perhaps this was, in fact, a prosaic explanation, such as Jerome Clark, who wrote in his 1998 book, The UFO Encyclopedia, The Phenomenon from the Beginning, that both the Gorman sighting and the Mantell incident were two of what he called, quote, the most overrated UFO reports in the history of the phenomenon, Mantell's sad death notwithstanding. Early days. Now, just like any recent show you may have seen on Netflix, we started in the action, but now we're going to have a flashback to earlier times to give you context and texture. So modern UFO sightings really begin in August 1883 in central Mexico at the Zacatecas Observatory, where astronomer Jose Bonilla took pictures of 300 or more dark objects crossing the sun that he saw while he was looking for sunspots. Later examination of these photographs concluded that they were unusually high-flying geese. In 1887, people all along the U.S. East Coast reported numerous sightings of mysterious airships. In 1896 and again in 1897, people all over the United States saw what were known as mystery airships, often light-covered, cigar-shaped craft, moving rather slowly, often containing beings, and sometimes people reported that they interacted with the beings inside. According to eyewitnesses, encounters with these beings were varied. Some of them spoke English and told the people they talked to that they were from Mars or from other places. Others tried to speak in a high-pitched, warbling sound that was unlike any human language. And still others didn't speak at all, but were human-looking, completely naked, and apparently very, very attractive. One former U.S. senator in Arkansas claimed that he met an alien pilot who told him that he was heading to Cuba to kill Spaniards. This was just before the Spanish-American War broke out in 1898. So, racist aliens? And then in April 1897, two interesting events occurred. The first was in Leroy, Kansas on the 19th where a man named Alexander Hamilton said he, his son, and another man saw an airship hanging in the air over his cattle pen, and when they looked closely, they saw a red cable coming down from the craft wrapped around one of his cows that had also gotten tangled up in the fence. Hamilton cut off part of the fence, and the cow was lifted by the cable up into the air and into the craft. This is probably the origin of the whole cows being taken by UFOs thing, as considered by some UFO researchers to be the first report of a UFO cattle mutilation, though what happened to the cow is unknown. On the same day, the 19th of April, the Dallas Morning News reported that a couple of days previously, so around the 17th, a mysterious airship had crashed into a windmill in Aurora, Texas, and the occupant had been killed. 
People present said the dead pilot was mangled, but clearly, quote, not of this world. The craft was a strange mixture of silver and aluminum and weighed a few tons and was covered in odd hieroglyphic figures. The locals gave the dead alien a Christian burial in the local cemetery. So if this story is true, then actually this would be the first UFO-related death reported, not Captain Mantell, though to be fair, Captain Mantell would be the first Earthman. Interestingly, in 1973, folks from MUFON investigated the site in Aurora, Texas, and they said they found the residue of an unusual metal that was part silver and part iron oxide, but the locals would not allow them to dig up the body to verify that it was in fact alien, so they had to go to the county seat to try and get permission, which took a number of years. And by the time they got that permission, they returned to the cemetery and the headstone had been removed and nobody would tell them which plot had the dead alien pilot. Into the 20th century in 1909, strange lights were observed in New Zealand. And then there was kind of a lull until late in World War II, around November 1944, Allied fighter pilots in both the European and Pacific theaters reported strange metal balls and balls of light sharing the sky with them. They nicknamed them Foo Fighters. Foo was just kind of a nonsense term from an old radio show. It was assumed by the higher-ups that these were either secret enemy weapons or some sort of electrostatic phenomenon like St. Elmo's Fire and basically ignored. Just after the war, UFOs known as ghost rockets were seen in the skies of Scandinavia and Northern Europe, called this because they were rocket or torpedo-shaped and wingless. Sightings started in February of 1946 and continued all the way through August. All told, there were around 2,000 reports in just six months. In May that year, a man named Gusta Carlsson said that he saw an alien craft and its occupants in Engelholm, Sweden, and today there is a model of the object on the spot that he said he saw it. Okay, so far, whatever. Officials in the U.S. certainly weren't thinking very much about this except maybe like a, well, that's kind of weird. And then things started happening in the skies over the United States in 1947. Maury Island, Island and Mount, Mount Rainier. Rainier. We go to the Pacific Northwest on January 21st, 1947, near Maury Island in Puget Sound in the state of Washington, just outside of Seattle. A harbor patrolman named Harold A. Dahl claimed that his son's arm was broken and his dog was killed by a weird lava-like white metal dripped onto his workboat by one of six donut-shaped UFOs. He later claimed he was approached by a mysterious man dressed all in black who basically told him to shut up about the whole incident or suffer repercussions. This is considered the first reported case of the now infamous Men in Black. So that was on June 21st. Three days later, a pilot named Kenneth Arnold said he saw nine shiny unidentified objects flying around Mount Rainier at about 1,200 miles an hour, quite fast. So he decided to poke around the whole Mount Rainier, Seattle area to see if anybody else had seen them, and he came across reports of Dahl's incident in Puget Sound. He met with Dahl and Dahl's friend, a guy named Fred Chrisman, who was also on the boat and saw the dog-killing dripping metal from the donut UFO, and he believed their story. So he thought, hmm, something strange is going on here. So he contacted a buddy of his who worked in Air Force Intelligence. That friend flew in with another investigator and looked around. 
Now, they concluded that the metal blobs on the boat, and there were metal blobs on the deck of the boat, they decided that these were actually aluminum, not something strange, and they didn't really care. They didn't tell Arnold because they didn't want to make him feel foolish. They just went, mm, okay, and got back on a plane to fly back to California. On the way back, their plane crashed, and both of the Air Force officers were killed. Now, this caught the attention of the FBI, who came round to investigate. They ended up deciding the whole thing was a hoax created by Dahl and his friend Chrisman in the hopes of selling their story to Chicago-based fantasy magazine. Kenneth Arnold's nine unidentified fast-moving objects around Matt Rainier's story, however, got massive attention from the press and elsewhere. Now, partly this is because Arnold was a clear-headed fellow who came across as a reliable witness and who was baffled and even a little creeped out by what he'd seen. But weirdness attracts weirdness, and pretty soon, poor Arnold is besieged by all sorts of people. Like, there was a preacher who said that what Arnold had seen was a sign of the beginning of the end times, or a woman who saw him in a cafe and shouted out, that's the man who saw the men from Mars, and then broke down in tears while begging him to save the children. And the press, of course, loved it. Numerous articles were written about this. He was interviewed many, many times, including by Edward R. Murrow. Now, Arnold called the things he saw around the mountain flying discs, but newspapers also started using the term flying saucers, and that's the name that stuck in popular imagination. Many more reports of odd flying saucers started coming in, not just from the Washington state area, but from every state in the country except for Montana, and even some from outside the U.S. In just a few months, over 860 reports would be filed about strange things in the skies. Saucer, Saucer to, to sign. sign. Great green balls of fire. Now, just a month later, in July of 47, just after the Kenneth Arnold sightings, the famous crash in Roswell, New Mexico occurred, and that's a whole story unto itself and a whole separate episode. We're not going to go into the details here. This probably happened on or near July 8th. On July 9th, the next day, the Army Air Force Directorate, cooperating with the FBI, launched an investigation. And then three weeks later, the Air Materiel Command at Wright Field in Ohio launched another so that's July 47. Then, in January 1948, Captain Mantell had his fatal encounter in the skies above Ohio and Kentucky, officially termed the first UFO-related death, though again, there's that alien in Aurora, Texas, and there's that dog on the boat in Puget Sound, not to mention the plane crash that killed the two Air Force investigators. Shortly after the Mantell incident, the Air Technical Service Command started Project Saucer, under Air Force General Nathan Farragut Twining to investigate all of these new UFO sighting claims. Twining was chief of the Air Force Materiel Command at Wright-Patterson Air Force Base in Dayton, Ohio, which today is where uh, the stealth bomber hangs out and is the supposed home of Hangar 18, which many UFO conspiracy people say is a warehouse filled with recovered alien technology. Wright-Pat becomes the home base for Project Saucer. Eh, Project Saucer seems a bit silly, maybe, so the name quickly morphs instead into Project Sign. Project Sign looked into the Mantell crash, entertaining a number of different theories that maybe what the Doom pilot had seen was actually the planet Venus, for example. But they finally settled on the explanation that what he had actually seen was a Navy Skyhook weather balloon that had been released as part of an actual secret project called Project Mogul. This was an Air Force operation that used high-altitude balloons equipped with 
powerful microphones to try and detect sound waves from Soviet nuclear bomb tests way, way, way far away. Interestingly, a crashed Project Mogul balloon would also end up being the official explanation for the events at Roswell in New Mexico. And the fact that Mantell was not used to flying the P-51 Mustang was also considered a factor in his unfortunate death. In July, Project Sign also looked into the child's witted UFO Eastern Airlines encounter over Alabama, and they concluded that what the commercial pilots had seen were meteors. In the summer, Project Sign issued a document called Estimate of the Situation that concludes that while some of the UFO reports that are coming in can certainly be explained away, as they did with Mantell and the child's witted encounters, many of them are actual craft of some kind but of unknown origin. Later that year, mysterious green fireballs are seen over New Mexico and then later over various U.S. military bases around the country. In October, George Gorman had his dogfight over Fargo, North Dakota, and Project Sign investigated it and concluded that that was also a weather balloon. Man, these weather balloons are a problem. In January 1949, Project Sign wrote their final report reiterating that despite their findings in the Mantell, Charles Witted, and Gorman cases, very often we were probably dealing with actual physical objects, and they suggested that wherever they were from, it was very possible that they were not from Earth. This report was sent to General Hoyt Vandenberg, who is the Air Force Chief of Staff at the Pentagon, who read it and really did not like these conclusions, so he pulled the plug on Project Sign after just a year of investigations. Just before they closed up shop, members of Project Sign attended a conference at Los Alamos in February 49 that had notable scientists, for example, Edward Teller, looking into this whole green fireball phenomenon. Now, the establishment really frowned upon this. Vandenberg had a lot of friends and a lot of influence, and he wanted the whole thing shut up because they thought it was hooey. So green fireball meetings continued to happen throughout the year, but in secret. Not everybody from Project Sign attended these, however. In just its year of existence, a divide had developed in the organization between people who believed or entertained seriously the, quote, extraterrestrial origin hypothesis and people who favored more conventional explanations. Grudge match. Project Sign's final words were that the UFO phenomenon needed continued study. So enter Project Grudge, also based at Wright-Patterson Air Force Base in Ohio. However, this project had a debunking mandate from the start from on high. Investigators were hamstrung by office politics and bureaucracy. Evidence was mishandled. Clues were not followed up on, and basically the whole thing was a mess. Every sighting report that came in was poo-pooed and treated as a joke. In August, Project Grudge submitted their one and only report, the 600-page-long Grudge report, that basically said that all the various sightings were explainable, a combination of misinterpretation of normal objects, mass hysteria, hoaxers, and crazy people. One of the people who helped draft the recommendations section of this document was astronomer Dr. Joseph Allen Hinek, who had also been involved in Project Sign. He urged that Air Force personnel get at least a basic education in astronomical phenomena and that, yes, while the report says that many of the sightings are explainable, 23% of them actually cannot be explained away and so therefore more research and investigation needs to be done. 
In December 1949, the people who'd been participating in the secret green fireball meetings tried to get something called Project Twinkle off the ground. This was to be a network of observation and photography units devoted to analyzing the green fireball phenomenon. But it never really happened, and after two years of trying, official word came from on high that the green fireball thing was just a natural phenomenon, and that's the end of it, and nobody had better be looking into it. Project Grudge limped along until 1951 when it was finally put out of its misery, with most personnel getting reassigned elsewhere. However, when the head of Air Force Intelligence at the Pentagon, General Charles Cable, learned that Grudge had been so slipshod and sloppy and had actively ignored many UFO sighting reports altogether, he became quite annoyed, describing the Grudge report as, quote, tripe. He was angry he'd been lied to, and he was also angry that there was still no clear answer to what he called the saucer problem. So he and a few like-minded high-ranking officers pushed for the creation of a new project codenamed Project Blue Book, which was started up in March 1952, also based at Wright-Patterson Air Force Base. Since we've hit upon the origins of UFO mania and where certain common terms come from, like flying saucer and men in black, it also might be worth taking a quick interval out to take a look at the origin of another classic term in the annals of UFO fandom, little green men. The Kelly Hopkinsville Encounter. On the evening of August 21st, 1955, we're in now, carnival workers Elmer Lucky Sutton, a friend named Billy Ray Taylor, and some of their family members and children were settling in to have dinner at Lucky's mother's farmhouse near Kelly, Kentucky. About 7 p.m., they saw a bright streak in the sky. Didn't think anything of it, went back to dinner. An hour later, dinner done, a dog started barking its head off and wouldn't stop, so when the two carnies went outside to see what set them off, they saw a creature with some sort of a scary face, as they put it. So, they went in, got their guns, and opened fire at the scary face when it looked in the window. This started a four-hour-long ordeal that involved several of the creatures, they guessed somewhere between 12 and 15, one of which used its long-clawed hands at one point to grab Taylor's hair and many rounds of ammunition. They said they thought they'd shot one from the roof for sure, but instead of falling to the ground, it just sort of floated to the ground. After the four-hour siege, the two men rushed into the nearest large town, which is Hopkinsville, to get help from law enforcement. Five state troopers, four members of the local police, and three deputy sheriffs were joined by four military police from an army base nearby, Fort Campbell, and they all went with Sutton and Taylor to the farm to see what was what. They found a couple of bullet holes and a lot of casings, but no bodies, no footprints, no blood, and certainly no spaceship. Now, of course, the press got a hold of the story and started describing the little men as being between two and four feet tall with large pointy ears, clawed hands, glowing eyes, and super skinny legs. They even published a drawing made by some of the family members of what they said they'd seen. Two UFO researchers, Bud Ledwith and Isabel Davis, tracked the families down and wrote a book about it called Close Encounters at Kelly and Others of 1955. I guess 55, like 1948, was a busy year for UFOs. Later, other researchers, let's call them, started adding all sorts of detail that the witnesses had not mentioned at all, like bullets ricocheting off the aliens' metallic bodies, like there being a flying saucer sitting there in the yard and things like this. All this talk 
kept at least a little bit of the press somewhat interested monitoring what was going on. And somewhere in all of this, some reporter somewhere added green to the description of little men and the term little green men was born. It's possible that another report of an alien creature over in eastern Kentucky, where a woman said she saw a six-foot-tall green man, got conflated with this farmhouse siege in western Kentucky and the little man, and so the little man and the green man got mashed together. Now, in science fiction, there had been references to green-skinned men or little green men uh, for at least 50 years prior to this, and in 1951, Writer Mac Reynolds published his novel, The Case of the Little Green Men, which is about a private detective hired to find aliens living among us. And in 1952, Startling Stories published his short story, How Green Was My Martian. So maybe a reporter read these or heard of these and it all got mixed up in the reporter's mind. However, some serious investigations into what happened at the farm that night with the Suttons and the Taylors have come up with the explanation that perhaps what they'd seen were great horned owls, also called eagle owls or hood owls. These owls are quite large. They can become quite aggressive. They have big pointy ears. They have eyes that reflect light and so look like they glow. And they do have nasty claws. It might have seemed like there were a lot of them because they can be quite fast and move around in the dark. But most likely, the explanation goes, it was a mated pair who felt that the carnies, who'd only recently rented the farmhouse that previous to this had been empty, were a threat to their nest. Project Blue Book looked into it, and they determined the whole thing was some kind of a hoax. Though people that knew Lucky Sutton said, actually, that does not jibe with what we know about him. He's a really reasonable guy, he never exaggerates, and he doesn't even really drink. In fact, alcohol was forbidden in the farmhouse. But maybe it's possible that these witnesses were surprised and confused by what was going on with these two big owls or whatever was happening, and their minds built a weird wild tale to describe the actions of two pissed off owls. So many people came to the farmhouse after the news stories started to become popular that they put up no trespassing signs, and when that didn't work, they started charging people money to come onto the property and even more money to take pictures or hear the story, which the Project Blue Book investigators said was proof that they were just hoaxers looking to make a buck. Or, you know what? Maybe it was a weird gang of aliens. The family members were certainly freaked out. Several of the women and children were examined by a doctor and had heart rates in excess of 140 beats a minute. And the reason the police got involved was that it seemed out of character for Sutton and Taylor, who were known by the police, to even go to the police in the first place. Police Chief Russell Greenwell later said, quote, These aren't the kind of people who normally run to the police for help. What they do is reach for their guns. At any rate, there is a Little Green Men Festival every year in Hopkinsville, Kentucky to mark the anniversary of this event. The Golden, the Golden Age, Age of Blue, Blue Book. Book. From Green Men, we go back up the color spectrum to Blue and Project Blue Book. Blue Book was more under the radar than Sign or Grudge had been, and it had two main briefs. One, to determine if these UFOs were a threat to national security, and two, to figure out what the heck they were. Captain Edward J. Ruppel, known for being intelligent, fair, and open-minded, was put in charge of the project at its inception, and he was also an experienced airman, so he knew some things on his own. He was the one who came up with the term Unidentified Flying Object, or UFO, to replace the more salacious flying saucer or flying disc that the press liked to use. He brought in astronomer Joseph Allen Hinek, who had been part of both Sign and Grudge, 
and who had urged for more investigations as one of the main investigators. Hennick had started out as a total skeptic, but during his time with Blue Book, he eventually changed his mind a bit, unable to account for many of the eyewitness testimonies that he heard. And he really, really didn't like the tendency from the grudge days from some higher up the chain of command to ridicule UFO research and people who claimed to see one. Interestingly, Hinek would later go on to develop the Hinek scale for UFO sightings in 1972. This includes close encounters of the first kind, which is a visual sighting less than 500 feet away with good detail, close encounters of the second kind, a UFO event that leaves behind a physical effect like animals being bothered, burnt grass, chemical traces, electronic interference, heat, or even paralysis experienced by witnesses, and the famous, thanks to Steven Spielberg, close encounters of the third kind, which is being in the physical presence of an entity, such as an alien being, an alien robot, and so on. The Robertson, the Robertson Panel, panel. Things went well for Blue Book for a while, but then the Robertson panel convened in January 1953. This was created by the CIA and had many prominent scientists on it. In a marathon 12-hour session, they reviewed film footage and hundreds of reports, and their conclusion was that all UFOs could be explained without resorting to wild speculation like aliens or super tech from some rival nation. They further said that UFOs were not a threat to national security, but the increasing number of UFO reports were because they took up intelligence agencies' time and personnel and resources so that an actual threat might get overlooked while people were chasing down these spurious UFO reports. They recommended that the general public be convinced that UFOs were totally natural and harmless and that anyone who said otherwise was either stupid or crazy or an enemy agent attempting to undermine society. They said mass media, including Walt Disney Studios, should produce a series of stories, films, and TV programs, and even news articles ridiculing anyone who claimed to have seen a UFO. They also said citizen groups that got together to talk about UFOs should be watched closely by the intelligence services, because probably at least some of the people in there were trying to undermine America. So basically, the Robertson panel suggested that there should be a propaganda push, demonization of people who claimed they saw something, and that the government should spy on its own citizens. This would essentially become the policy of the military and intelligence communities for the next 20 years when it came to unidentified flying objects. That was January 53. The next month, in February, the Air Force put out Regulation 200-2, which ordered all base officers that they could only discuss UFO incidents in public after they had been solved. Any unsolved cases were to be considered classified. In December, the Air Force, Navy, and Army got together and issued Joint Regulation Number 146 that said it was a crime for any military personnel at any level to discuss UFO reports with unauthorized people, punishable with a $10,000 fine and or two years in prison. End, End of, an, of era. an era. Maybe because of all this, Rupert retired from the military in late 1953. He was only 30 years old. It wasn't like he was due for retirement. He worked in the private sector for an aerospace company and then published in 1956 the seminal book, The Report on Unidentified Flying Objects. That same year, he was invited to run the newly formed National Investigations Committee on Aerial Phenomena, or NICAP, but he declined, saying he was in poor health after a heart attack. 
1960, Roeport released an expanded version of his 1956 book, but now it had additional sections at the back that said the UFO thing was, quote, space age myth. He then died on September 15th, 1960, at the age of 37. After Ruppelt, new heads of Blue Book were a combination of skeptical, downright hostile to the idea of UFOs, and or incompetent. Though, to be fair, one, Lieutenant Colonel Robert J. Friend, who ran it from 1958 to 1963, did try to get things back to the way they were under Ruppelt, but he was stymied at every turn. Project Blue Book had basically, at this point, become a new, more disorganized version of Project Grudge, with a mandate from on high to debunk and demonize. President Nixon ordered it shut on December 17, 1969, and they filed their last report on January 9, 1970. Project Blue Book's final conclusions were pretty much the same as before that reports of UFOs were either some sort of mild mass hysteria, they were fabrications, they were crazy people, or they were normal, conventional things that were simply misidentified by confused or an uninformed public. And since no military personnel were allowed to talk about them, that seemed to put an end to that. After 18 years of investigations, Blue Book had examined 12,618 reports, and yet 701 of those are still classified as unidentified, despite some of the best efforts from those in authority who wanted to just shut the whole thing up. The U.S. military would have nothing official looking into UFOs again until 2007 when they created the Advanced Aerospace Threat Identification Program, or ATIP, which ran for five years. Under ATIP's auspices, the term UFO was transitioned to UAP, Unidentified Aerial Phenomena. The program was headed by Luis Elizondo, who later either quit or was forced out and has been working with the To The Stars Academy of Arts and Sciences since 2017. In some of his interviews with military pilots who claimed to have seen UFOs, Elizondo found that at least one of the reasons for the higher-ups' reluctance to examine the UFO, or UAP if you prefer, phenomenon closer, was that there were quite a few of them who were fundamentalist Christians who were very uncomfortable with the idea of alien beings or who thought that they were not aliens but were in fact demons and devils. And this may be one of the reasons why Grudge and the later portions of Blue Book were such debunking factories. Anyway, that was shut down in 2012 and then nothing again until June 2020 when a new organization was created, the Unidentified Aerial Phenomenon Task Force, or UAPTF. But that is a different story and a different episode. Thank you for visiting The Conspiracy Clearinghouse. We're closing now, but we'll open another crate in the next episode. Until then, thank you for listening.